0: Chapter 8 of The Life and Adventures of Peter Wilkins, Volume 2, by Robert Paltek. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8. This being the fifth morning, I cleaned up my best gun and prepared my balls, and we all took a walk toward the bridge, everyone admiring my gun as we went, but I could get none of them to carry it, and we had at least five hundred questions proposed about it. I told them they need not be afraid of it, for it was only wood and iron, but they knew nothing of iron I then showed them how I made it give fire, by snapping the cock. They thought it was very strange. I then put a little powder in the pan and made it flash. And showing them the empty pan, they would not be persuaded, but I had taken away the powder before the flash, Or else, they said, it was impossible that should be all gone upon flashing only. For they said it was a little nut using the same word to express both nut and seed. I then desired one of them to put in some powder and snap it himself, but having prevailed with him to try the experiment, if I had not through caution held my hand upon the barrel, the gun had been on the ground, for the moment it flashed he let go and ran for it. I had a great inclination to gain the better of their prejudices, and used abundance of arguments to prove the gun as innocent a thing as a twig I took up, and that it was the powder which, when set on fire, the flame thereof, wanting more room than the powder itself did, forced itself and all that opposed it out of the mouth of the gun, with such fury as to make the noise they heard. And being just come to the rock... Now, says I, you shall see that what I tell you is true. They told me they desired nothing more than that I would make them understand it, for it was the strangest thing they had ever seen. Well then, says I, observe. I put in this much powder only, and with this rag I stop it down close. Now says I. You see by the length of this stick that the rag and powder take up the space only of a finger's depth on the inside of the gun. They saw that plainly, they said, but how could that kill anything? Now, look again, says I. I put in a little more powder, as I did before when I made a flash, And you see there is a little hole from this powder through the side of the gun to the powder within. Do you observe that this communicates with that through this hole? Yes, said they, they did. Now, says I, when I put fire to this, it sets fire to that within, which fire, turning into flame and wanting room, bursts out at the mouth of the gun. And to show you with what force it comes out, here, handle this round ball, giving them a bullet to handle. You feel how heavy it is? Now, can any of you throw this ball as far as that rock? For I stood a good hundred paces from it. They told me, no, And don't you think, says I, that if the force of the fire made by this powder can throw this ball to that rock, that force must be very great. They said they thought it must, but believed it to be impossible. But, says I, if it not only throws it to the rock, but beats out a piece of the stone, must not that be much more violent? They agreed it must. Then putting in the ball, Now, says I, we will try. I then ordered one to daub a part of the rock about breast high with some mud, and first to observe about it if the rock was anywhere fresh broken or not. Who, returning, reported that the rock was all of a color and sound, but somewhat ragged, all about the mud. Did you lay the mud on smooth, says I? He replied, yes. Then, lifting up my gun, I perceived they were creeping off, so I took it down again, and calling, reasoned with them upon their fears. What mischief, says I, can you apprehend from this gun in my hand? Should I be able to hurt you with it? Are you not all my friends or relations? Could I be willing to do it? If the gun of itself could hurt, would I handle it as I do? For shame, "'Be more courageous, rouse your reason, and stand by me. "'I shall take care not to hurt you. "'It looks as if you mistrust my love for you, "'for this gun can do nothing but what I direct it to. "'By such like persuasions, rough and smooth, "'I prevailed upon the major part of the Colams and officers "'to stand near me to see me fire. "'And then I shot.' But though my words had engaged them to stand it, I had no sooner snapped, but the Grundies flew all open, though they closed again immediately, and then we fell to question and answer again. I desired them to walk to the rock, and sent the person who put up the mark before to see and show us exactly what alteration there was. He told us there was a round hole in the mud, pointing to it, which he did not leave there, and taking away the mud, a thick sliver of the rock followed." They then all agreed that the ball must have made both the hole in the mud, and also splintered the rock, and stood in amaze at it, not being able to comprehend it. But by all the art I had, I could not prevail with a man of them to fire the gun himself, till it had been buzzed about a good while and at last came to my ears that a common soldier behind said he should not be afraid of it if the gentleman would show him how. I then ordered the fellow to me, and he told me with a composed look that it had always been his way of thinking that what he saw another do he could do himself and could not rest till he had tried. And, sir, says he, if this gun, as you call it, does not hurt you, Why should it hurt me? And if you can make it hit that rock, why should not I, when you have told me how you manage it? Are you not the man that first helped me up with the large fish yesterday, says I? He told me he was. I was prodigiously pleased with the fellow's spirit. And, says I, my friend, if you will, and I live, you will hit it before you have done." I then showed him the sight of the gun, and how to hold it, and being perfect in that. Now, says I, shut your left eye and observe with your right, till this knob and that notch are exactly even with each other and the middle of that mark. And when they are so, pull this bit with your forefinger, holding the gun tight to your shoulder." He so exactly pursued my directions that he hit the very middle of the mud, and then, without any emotion, walked up with the gun in his hand, as I had done before, and turning to me very gravely, "'Sir,' says he, "'it is hit. I told him the best marksman on earth could not be sure of coming so near his mark.' He stroked his chin, and giving me the gun again, was walking to his place. But I stopped him, and seeing something so modest and sincere in his countenance and behavior, and so generous in his spirit, I asked him to which Colam he belonged. He told me to Colam Pendlehamby. To my father, says I, then sure, I shall not be denied. I took him with me to my father, who was not yet come up to the rock. "'Sir,' says I, "'there is a favor I would beg of you. "'Son,' says he, "'what is it you can ask that I can refuse you?' "'Says I, "'this man belongs to your guards. "'Now there is something so noble and daring in his spirit, "'and yet so meek and deserving in his deportment, "'that if you will load me with obligation, "'it is to make him an officer.' He is not deserving of so ill a station as a private man. My father looked at me. Son, says he, there is something to be done before he can be qualified for what you require. This, thinks I, is a put-off. Pray, sir, says I, what can a man of courage, sense, and a cool temper want to qualify him for what I ask? Something, says he, which none but myself can give and that, at your desire, I will supply him with. Then my father calling him, Lask Nazgig, banyo, says he. That is, slave Nazgig, lie down. Nazgig, for that was his name, immediately fell on his face with his arms and hands straight by his sides. When my father, setting his left foot on Nazgig's neck, pronounced these words, Lask, I give thee life thou art a Filgay. Then Nasgig, raising himself on his knees, made obeisance to my father, and standing up, stroked his chin, and my father, taking him by the hand, in token of equality, the ceremony ceased. Now, son, says my father, let me hear your request. It is only, sir, said I, preferment for the deserving, equal to his merit." My father asked him if he understood the duty of a gorpel. He did not reply yes, but beginning gave a compendious sort of history of his whole duty, at which all the Kolams were very much surprised, for even his comrades were not apprised or ever imagined he knew more of military affairs than themselves.' My father then asked him if he knew how to behave as a duff, but he made as little difficulty of that as the other, going through the several parts of duty in all the different branches, in peace and war, at home and abroad. "'Son,' says my father, it is a mystery to me you should have found out more in an hour than I myself could in half an age. For this man was born in my palang, of my own lask, and has been mine and my father's these forty years. I shall be glad if you will look on the rest of my lasks and give me your opinion. I may have more as deserving. I told him such as Nazgig were not to be met with very often, but when they were found ought to be cherished accordingly. Sir, says I, nature works upon the same sort of material diverse ways on some in sport, On some in earnest, and if the necessary qualifications of a great man are impressed on our mass, it is odds, but we improve regularly into one, though it may never be publicly known, or even to ourselves, till a proper occasion. For as a curious genius will be most inquisitive after, and is most in the end retentive of knowledge, so no man is less ostentatious of it he covets knowledge, not from the prospect of gain, but merely for its own sake, the very knowing being his recompense. And if I may presume to give you a hint how properly to bestow your favors, let it be on persons like this, for the vain knowing man who is always showing it, as he for the most part labors for it, to show out with, and procure his rise by it, were it not for the hopes of that would not think knowledge worth attaining, and as his rise is his aim, if he could invent any more expeditious method than that, he would not preterm it any ill act that might advance him according to his lust of rising. But the man who aims at perfection, from his natural inclination must to attain his end, avoid all ill courses as impediments to perfection he lusts after, and that, by Nazgig's worth being so little known, I'll answer, for it is his character, and this being true, yourself will deduce the consequence, which is the fitter man to bear place. For with me it is a maxim, he that labors after truth for truth's sake, and that he surely must, who proposes no worldly view in it, can't arrive at his ends by false methods, but is always the truest friend to himself and others.' the truest subject to his Lord, and the most faithful servant to his God. "'My father then turning to me, Son,' says he, "'you have enlightened me more than ever I was before, and have put me on a new way of thinking, for which I am to return you many thanks. And the whole company doing the same,' says my father." I lost a brave general officer lately, who was destined to the Western Wars, which are breaking out, and have been long debating in my mind to whom I should commit his corps. And but for the hazard of the enterprise, I would have now given it to Nasgig, but shall be loath to lose him so soon after I am acquainted with his worth, so will think of some other post nearer my person for him. "'less dangerous, though perhaps not so honorable. "'Great, sir,' says Nasgig, I am too sensible of the honor already done me to think any post wherein I may continue to serve you either too mean or too hazardous for me. And as valor is nowhere so conspicuous as in the greatest dangers, I shall esteem my blood spent in great advantage in any enterprise where my duty under your command leads me. I therefore rather humbly request this dangerous post that I may either lose my life in your service or live to see you justified in your advancement of me by the whole nation. For what can I do or how can I demonstrate my affection to your person and pleasure in an inactive state? Here, the whole level rang with applause to Nazgig. My father, then giving his hand to Nazgig in token of friendship and his word for the investiture in the command of that vacant post, the whole level again resounded with, Long live Pendlehamby and his servant Nazgig. This being the last day of my company's stay, for they had agreed to go homewards next morning, some of them moved to return the sooner, that they might have time to hear out my story, so that our stay was very little longer. In our return home, Nasgig singled me out to return his acknowledgments for my favor, and viewing my gun, told me they had no such thing growing in his country, I told him if he had it, it would do no good without my powder. I then, at his request, described what I had heard of our method of fighting in battle in Europe, and mentioning our cannon. He said he supposed they killed every man they hit. No, says I, not so bad as that. Sometimes they hit the flesh only, and that is commonly cured. Sometimes break a leg or arm, and that may in time be cured, some so well as to be useful again, and others are cut off and healed up again, but if the ball hits the head or vitals, it is commonly mortal. Oh, says he, give me the head or vitals then, no broken limbs for me. After dinner, at their request, I went on with my story, at repairing the castle, and my escape from glandlepsy, and so on to the crocodile, when I repeated his speech to me on that account, and told them it had made such an impression upon me that I had endeavored to make it the leading thought of my mind, and had set it down upon one of my doors at the grotto, that it might the oftener be in my sight when any difficulty arose. One of the Colams begged pardon for interrupting, but told me, though he understood what Glenlepsy meant, he could not tell how I could set what he said down at my grotto, or have it in my sight, and desired me to explain that. I would have told my guest I took it down in writing, if that would not have puzzled the cause more, But to go the nearest way I could, I told him we had a method in my country of conveying to a man at a great distance whatever we have a mind to say to him, and in such a manner that nobody but himself would know what we would have him know. After pausing here a little to consider the easiest method of demonstrating this to their senses, they told me they had gone as far as their conjectures could carry them, but could conclude on nothing so improbable as sending it by a messenger. I told them that, in part, was my way, but my messenger should not know the message he carried. That graveled them quite, and they were unanimous. That was what could be done. By this time I had sent for a wood coal to write upon my deal table, and kneeling down to the table I began to write, Honored sir, I send this to gain by your answer to it an account of your arrival at Arndromstake. I then called them to me. Now, says I, suppose I want to know how my father gets back to Arndrumstake. My way is this. I set down so many words as will express my meaning to my father after the manner you see on this table, and make a little distance between each word which is the same as you do in speaking. For there, if you run one word into another and don't give each its proper sound, who can understand you? For though you speak what contains all the words, yet without the proper sound and distinction, it is only confusion. Do you understand that? They told me they did. Then, says I, these are the words I would have my father know. I being at this arco, and he at Arndrumstake, Honored sir, and so I read on, Here, says I, you must take us to be countrymen, and that he and I understand both the same method. Now look, this word, which ends where you see the gap, stands for honored, and this next for sir, the next for I and so on, and we both, using the same method and seeing each other's words, are able to open our minds at a distance. I was now in hopes I had done, and was going on with my story. But, says one of the colambs, Mr. Peter, though this is a matter that requires consideration, I plainly see how you do it, by agreeing that all these strokes put into this form shall stand for the word honored, and so on, as you say, let who will make them. But have you not set down there the word arndrum stake? Yes, says I. Why then, says he, none of your countrymen could understand what that means. No, says I, smiling, but they could, says he. You say you agree what strokes shall stand for one word and what for another, But then how could your countrymen, who never knew what strokes you would set down for Arndram stake, know that your strokes meant that very country? For that you could not have agreed upon before either of you knew there was any such place. I was at a loss, without spending more words than I was willing about it, how to answer this close reasoner, and talking of syllables and letters would only have perplexed the affair more. So I told him, the readiest for dispatch, that as every word consisted of one or more distinct sounds, and as some of the same sounds happened in different words, We did not agree so much upon making our strokes stand for several words as for several sounds, and those sounds, more or less of them added together, made the particular words. As, for example, says I, arn is one sound, drum is another sound, and steak is another. Now, by our knowing how to set down these several sounds by themselves, we can couple them and apply them to making up any word in the manner we please. And therefore he, by seeing these three sounds together, knows I mean arndrumstick, and can speak it as well, though he never heard the whole word spoken together, as if he heard me speak it to him. I have some little notion of what you mean, says he, but not clear enough to express myself upon it. And so, go on, go on, and pray. What did you do about the reeds? I then, resuming my discourse where I left off, completed my narration that night, but I could perceive the water in my father's eyes when I came to the account of Uwarkee's fall and the condition I took her up in. When I had done, they adjusted the order of their flight for avoiding confusion, one to go so long before another and the junior colams to go first. In the morning, nothing was to be heard but the grip sacks, the men were all ranged in order to go off with their respective colams, and after all compliments passed, the junior colam arising walked halfway to the wood, where his gripsack standing to wait for him preceded him to the level, the next gripsack standing ready to sound as soon as the first removed, and this was the signal for the second colam to move, so that each colam was a quarter of a mile before the other. My father, was the last but two. But I shall never forget his tenderness at parting with his daughter and grandchildren, and I may say with myself, too. For by this time he had a high opinion of me. Patty went with my father, she so much resembling my wife, that my father said he should still have his two daughters in his sight, having her with him. At parting I presented Nazgig with a broadsword, and showing him the use of it, with many expressions of gratitude on his part and respect on mine, he took flight after the rest. End of chapter 8.